This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Office of Personnel Management has had a busy few months. It's put out new guidance on telework and hybrid work. It's finalized new policies on rehiring federal employees and student interns. And then there's that vaccine mandate for federal employees. For more on all of this and for her next year's priorities, Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco spoke with OPM's new director, Kieran Ahuja. I come from being at OPM before in a last iteration, as you may remember, uh, during the Obama administration. I had the really fortunate opportunity to be chief of staff there. Came in at a, a trying time, of unfortunately, following the 2015 data breaches, but it was a great opportunity, a real fast study on getting to know the agency and really just love the people there, a really committed group of individuals. And so it was a real honor to lead the transition team for the Biden-Harris transition team to focus on the OPM agency review team, as well as to be asked to serve in this position and to fortunately, you know, be confirmed. I will say I've, I've had a long history of being in public service, both started right after law school at the Department of Justice through a kind of feeder program, a program to bring in early career talent, and then also spent time out in the community focused on issues affecting different communities of color. So, you know, do care a great deal of around diversity, equity, inclusion. And I feel there's a real nice mesh here on uh, on the work that we're doing. So just wanted to share a little bit about myself and, and the work that I'm doing. And I think there's a nice segue here to, to your question, which is absolutely, you've, you've, you've been seeing things coming out of the agency from the telework guidance and remote work guidance to our focus on, of course, the vaccine requirement, as well as different type of regs. And those are kind of under a few priorities that I'd love to share with you, Nicole, that I think are going to be ongoing for a while, because as you know, and I know I'm talking to an expert here for the for OPM, which is nice, is that some of these things are, you know, are things that we can move quickly and others are just going to have to take time. So here are the three that I'm really focused on. One is that we have a real opportunity in this moment of sorting ourselves through the pandemic in so many different ways to really show up as a model employer for the federal government. Being the largest employer in this country, we have an opportunity to really set the tone. Second, we are focused on rebuilding the workforce, and we have inherited uh, some depletion in agencies and very mindful of that. And third, as you know well, we came into an agency that was literally on the chopping block. And so there's a lot of work that we need to be doing, you know, in rebuilding the agency. And so there is a lot there in each of those um, that I'm happy to jump in and explore with you a little bit if you're interested. Of course. Let's perhaps start with the first one. You know, I definitely wanted to talk to you a little bit about telework because I think that does fit into that priority of becoming a model employer. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen a lot of agencies at least express interest and perhaps put even specific plans out there about how they're going to make telework and remote work Mm -hmm. options, I guess, a more permanent fixture Mm -hmm. for them. I just wonder from your perspective, you know, we've seen the guidance that has come out so far. If there's anything next on that front, if there's a way to maybe institutionalize some Mm -hmm. of those thoughts on telework and remote work even more than maybe we've seen so far. Absolutely. Again, real opportunity. I think we're all seeing this. I think this not only sets up, I guess, the federal government to be a model employer, but actually be a competitive 
employers. So, you know, we're going to be issuing a guide, a telework remote work guide very soon. It lays out a lot of detail. I'll admit it's going to be a really long document, but it's uh, what our HR folks around government love, but it also at a high level is, is a different orientation. I think if, if you'll read carefully and we'll be sharing a bit more, if you read carefully, there is a shift, you know, for those of us who've been watching telework in the federal government, and I'll tell you, I was the same way as a manager, like I can't see my employees, like what are they doing and, and kind of holding ourselves accountable. And this moment in time over the past couple of years have has really helped us shift. And I think we are moving into a new type of a work environment, a hybrid work environment, and that's what agencies are trying to figure out. They know that what we've been able to do, and because this pandemic has really put a focus on workers, that we really want to support them. We want to support kind of what's involved in our lives around flexibilities and childcare, but also knowing that we can be really productive. So we have this guide coming out. We are also pulling together trainings and information around how to manage in a hybrid work environment, how to operate well in a work environment, as well as a new website focused on future of work. So there is, we are really leaning into this. This is an opportunity we know as agencies move towards, you know, what that new environment will look like. We want to be ready for that. Thank you for warning me that the document may be a long <laughs> one. I appreciate that as I look forward to seeing that at some Your point bedtime soon. Bedtime reading, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So along the telework lines, so the the new policy, a new website coming out, more guidance on how to Mm -hmm. to manage, that sounds like something that agencies have been asking for in a sense. Mm -hmm. I wonder, on the telework question again, Mm -hmm. are there other things that need to happen even beyond that? I mean, members of Congress have even questioned, Mm -hmm. do we need to update telework laws? Is it time for that? Because I think so far you all have kind of been operating maybe within the bounds of the current policies Mm -hmm. and regulations that are out there. That is something we're anticipating as well. I think we're kind of taking this in incremental steps that there has been a complete altered mindset, I think, across the board with like employees and managers. As I mentioned, kind of my own personal orientation, there has been a challenge around kind of buy-in before we kind of, you know, went into the pandemic and, and to no fault to kind of anyone out there who was who was skeptic, I think it was just really understanding what this could look like. And, and I think the pandemic has, you know, try to take, you know, make lemonade out of lemons. We've seen that we can really do this work well, and we can be really creative and innovative. And so I think that the 2010 Telework Act had a version of what we thought, you know, or what we envisioned telework to be. And certainly we are having discussions internally and with our our, uh, the Chico Council, which has been a great resource for us around how we think through these ideas. So we're pulling this all together to, to evaluate the limitations we know that exist in the law, how we might want to think about where we want to build in more flexibilities. I think we also need to be thinking more about remote work and what that means. And that really, ha- you know, we haven't really tackled that. So absolutely, you know, there is, there's going to be that longer term, like, do we need additional legislative action to allow us to truly live into these flexibilities and be competitive. Can I ask you how you're thinking about telework and remote work and some of these flexibilities for OPM internally? Um, Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning that you're in the process of sort of rebuilding the, Mm -hmm. the agency from what we saw over the last couple of years. And 
I know OPM has lost staff and experience and, and all of that. So I just wonder how you're thinking about maybe applying some of these flexibilities that we just talked about to the challenges that your own agency has. Sure. I think, you know, we're probably doing what I know my colleagues are doing across the federal government, which is we are, you know, sitting down with our with our leadership and and determining, you know, if, if we actually looked at every position, right, could that be something that could be done in, you know, some type of hybrid form or predominantly telework or in some cases remote work? And also, I think really understanding, Nicole, that, you know, we've got a huge segment of our federal government that can't telework, you know, and and I think we're wanting to try to weigh those equities. Those have been just some hard conversations. So even with an OPM, we know there's a segment of our uh, workforce that has to show up. And so we are certainly having those discussions, you know, since we are positioning ourselves to encourage greater telework and remote work in the federal government, certainly we want to bring that back home and do that in our home court. But I, I think there are these important principles around both, we know it's it's something that our employees desire. Is it possible with the position? What does it mean around equities within a program office, within the larger agency? And then also what it mean, what does it mean for our footprint, right? I think agencies and ourselves are thinking through what's going to be the impact. And you know, the way I'm looking at this, Nicole, is that this has to be an iterative process. We have to kind of try this on and and really see what works and continue to get that feedback. Certainly we want to work hand in hand with our unions as well around these issues. So an important question and, and something we're certainly discussing internally right now, as we know our, you know, our agency partners are. I definitely wanted to make sure I asked you a little bit about your thoughts and priorities on early career talent, because I know that is one of your priorities. (laughs) And perhaps fits into that second bucket that you mentioned of rebuilding the federal mm-hmm. workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen the regulations that have come out so far on flexibilities for interns. Mm-hmm. I think there was another digital core program. Yes, yes. I wanted to ask you specifically about pathways because mm-hmm. it seems as if that has some struggles. And mm-hmm. I just wonder from your perspective, what's going on there? Why haven't agencies been able to use that? And how are you thinking about maybe shifting things with the Pathways program? You know, when I think about being a model employer, one thing that I think we often overlook is that we are a mission-driven organization. There is like amazing work happening in the federal government. And we do a disservice to ourselves and to the rest of the American public to not talk about it more, not to talk about it in a way that we're getting our message out there. And so that is going to be a big focus for me in concert with my colleagues across the government. And I think a real commitment collectively that we have to public service and the power of what we can do, the good that comes from government. And I do think this kind of early career talent, even younger generation, like they are motivated by mission-driven organizations. So we should be winning on that point. And so there's more we can do there. I think, you know, related to kind of getting into the nitty gritty of, of pathways, We saw the post-secondary hiring reg that we put out, and we're also going to be pushing out a recent grad reg that is to kind of supplement. And I think, you know, really, Nicole, in a lot of ways, this is kind of acknowledging where we've had those challenges with pathways, but we are focused on improving pathways and really fine-tuning. I think, you know, I think the challenge in any of these programs where we were trying to address one challenge which was we need to have a process and a particular pathway of how we bring in early career talent. We, we can't completely circumvent the competitive 
hiring process. But at the same time, we can't swing all the way to the other end where we just make it really challenging for agencies to be able to bring in the early career talent that they need. And so we are working to fine tune the pathways right now as we speak. We have been, again, working with our amazing Chico Council to kind of understand those pain points and really tweak them. And there's a real commitment from us to pull that together. And I look forward to sharing more of that with you. And and I hope I can have another conversation with you uh, as we dig into that, because I think both the the regs that one that's out, one that will push out that I think gives a real opportunity for agencies right now to recruit and to recruit in a big way. I think one thing I want to mention just about the post-secondary hiring reg is that, you know, now you can hire up to a GS-11. So if you think about kind of this idea of DC known for unpaid internships, you know, like we we kind of (laughs) lived off of unpaid internships. And of course, I think that's not the way to go and, and certainly not what we want to stand on as far as what it takes to to work in DC and the fact that we want to expose so many people to the experience and, and wonder of federal government and the, and the good you can do. But also we know that like students in schools, like this idea of like, what's the traditional and non-traditional, that is totally flipped. We have students who are working jobs outside of school, they're supporting families, they're supporting like extended families. And I think, you know, we're also trying to say that here's an opportunity because we want to set up as a model employer that the federal government is a pathway to a good paying job, you know, where you can be unionized, you get a generous set of health benefits, you can think about retirement early, which we all tell ourselves once we get to a certain age, I'm 50, well, I should have started saving a while ago. So I think this is all tied into that, Nicole, a long way of saying, I know Pathways is a pain point, (laughs) we're on it. Got it. So I'm going to switch gears entirely here and ask you just a bit about the vaccine mandate. We're approaching the point where you have some deadlines coming up. Agencies will start to have details about the number of people who are vaccinated, Mm -hmm. the number Mm -hmm. who who are not. Mm -hmm. My question is, is OPM going to collect that data and share that data? And I ask that question because I got to imagine that agencies are going to maybe come to OPM and say, look, here's the situation we're in with this mandate. What do we do next? And so I wonder how you all are preparing for some of those deadlines, if that question makes sense. You know, we're, we have the benefit of being a co-lead on the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. And there, you know, it really just allows for this concerted, cohesive government-wide effort. And certainly, you know, we're not kind of the only agency kind of sitting at the table, kind of working through these really important and uh, trying times, you know, as we get our work environments to be a safe work environment, how we, you know, where we have our employees who are who are safe and taken care of through the vaccine. I will say that, you know, first and foremost, you know, vaccines are like the best tool in the toolbox that we have. This is, you know, about creating safe work environments. And we certainly want to be able to to drive those vaccination numbers. And and we know that agencies are are watching those numbers and collecting that information around attestation and now documentation. And that's going to be helpful, as you know, right, to determine what's the course of action. This is really about, you know, driving the vaccination numbers. And we know as we get closer to kind of that deadline, compliance goes up. We know that it's been very successful in a lot of instances we've seen in the private sector you know, we want to be there and available to work collectively with agencies. And we have those, we have tons of calls where everybody's on asking questions, comparing notes. 
it really has been a collective effort. And I think that, you know, agencies are tracking, you know, that information within their agencies to be able to say, like, what's the subset of folks that we really need to be concerned about? And they've, and they've been able to do that. And, and that's been great. You know, we've been comparing notes. I, we just did this on a call yesterday with leadership, which is like, you know, targeted emails to individuals, like targeted conversations. You know, again, this is really focused on the education and counseling part of this and really getting our workforce to see the efficacy of these vaccines and to really, uh, again, create a safe work environment. Got it. I guess um, to maybe hone in on the question a little bit more specifically, I I guess I'm wondering if we can ever expect, and I'm not sure if this is OPM that would do this or if Mm -hmm. this is the broader task force force or Mm -hmm. someone Mm -hmm. else in the administration, Mm -hmm. if we're going to get to a point where we start to see, you know, like the Uniteds of the world, the private sector companies mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. saying, look, here's the status of the vaccination campaign within our workforce. I wonder mm-hmm. if that's in the cards for this particular vaccine mandate for feds. You know, that's a great question. I don't think we've gotten there yet. I think folks are just so, to be honest, Nicole, heads down sure. in what's happening in their agencies and and really just looking at the data now to say, where does the need lie? Where, where do we need, need to kind of put our focus and our attention? And then at the same time, you know, working through what does that mean kind of for the future, you know, for the agency and its operations. So, so I completely hear you. And I'm and I, and I, and these conversations are happening within the task force, but nothing to share at, at this point. But I, you know, we certainly are talking about those numbers at a large scale with United and Tyson's and others. I know in the military, now they're over 90% of their members who have had at least a first dose. So, you know, so those numbers are coming out. I think a part of this is that we're fairly along in this and the vaccine requirement process, you know, every agency is at a different place. So I think that is also the challenge of like, when are we all kind of been able to have the time to set up the systems, to be able to collect the information, to get a sense of what that means within our agencies. And so that's kind of where we're kind of really focused on right now. So there's a lot more I could ask you about, but looking at the clock, I wanted to give you one last opportunity to tell us about any other priorities that you might have that we just haven't covered yet. I think, you know, what I would might mention is just two things in particular, kind of first and foremost, we had a a great event with the vice president recently to really hone in again, how we want to be that model employer and the importance of unions in our, in our workplace. And it was a great opportunity to roll out guidance that OPM's, you know, has issued and working on that's just a beginning of a whole set of uh, guidances that we'll, we'll share around how we can be forward-facing and, and informing individuals who come into the government, you know, if they're part of a bargaining unit, information about their union, if they are, and be able to remind individuals who are already in government that, you know, their union and, and information, you know, oftentimes I've been told we'll get calls to OPM where people have been in government for a while and don't know if they're part of a bargaining unit and part of part of a union. So, you know, that's really important because I think, you know, we want to set the tone here of the importance of what unions bring and supporting and really building and growing a middle class. And again, you know, I will say that I think sometimes we don't say enough how the federal government is really a good paying job in a lot of respects. We want to be able to position the federal government as that um, with all its host of benefits, as well as historically it has been 
a pathway to the middle class for for communities of color as well. You know, a place where for the African-American community, that's where they were able to, to build their careers, where they didn't have those opportunities before. And that leads me to my second point, which is, as you know, Nicole, we've been doing a ton of work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. OPM has a host of those equities related to the executive order that the president issued in late June. We're excited about that effort. It's a, a whole host of things that we're going to be working on, including we just talked about unpaid internships. That's a part of it. How do we think about diversity and senior leadership? And as a part of just the, the rebuilding phase of our agency, you know, we've been rebuilding that office within OPM. And then finally, my last like pitch to everybody is that OPM is is building, it's it's invigorating itself, you know, from the, the great advice we got from the NAPA report to, to really the energy within the agency. We are positioning ourselves well, I hope, I know, to really be an asset to our agency partners and to be a strategic human capital leader. And that is, that is my focus. And that's Office of Personnel Management Director Kiran Ahuja speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them 
and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.